Greetings and welcome to the 5 by We have an excellent episode for you, covering some big games and big names in gaming. Lindsay covers Eclipse, Mason tells us all about Port Royal, and Ruth reviews in the Year of the Dragon. We also have new contributor Sarah giving us the rundown on paperback. But up first, Stephanie puts us to sleep with Dreamwell. Just don't actually fall asleep, because it's really good. I am one that has always dreamed vividly. If not a bit oddly. Images that are so disjointed and constantly shifting, but just barely come together enough to create some sort of bizarre narrative, both in peaceful slumber and nightmare sleep. And such is the theme of the game Dreamwell, developed by Nick Little for Action Phase Games. Before I go into gameplay, I have to talk about the artwork of the game. The illustrations in Dreamwell feature the art of Tara McPherson, and I couldn't think of a better artist to illustrate our dreams with all the darkness and light that comes with them. I have been a huge fan of Tara McPherson for almost a decade. In fact, when you walk into my house, the first thing you see is a print of McPherson's work. So when I heard that this game was in production, I knew I'd want to buy it the first moment that I could. Does that make me biased? Probably. But I still have the ability to admit when gameplay isn't up to par. Thankfully, with Dreamwell, that isn't an issue. In this grid movement and set collection game for two to four players, players control two pawns with the Mr. Wiggles character in the player's color. Yes, this character has a name. At the start of the game, the grid is laid out randomly, and a few cards are set up in the display to be drafted later. Then each player is dealt two cards, known as friends cards. Each turn, players can take three actions. Move one of their pawns, rotate a tile, play a card in hand if they can, draw a new card, or reset all the cards in the display. Moving and playing cards takes some careful thought and planning. When moving a pawn, movement is limited by the doors on each tile, meaning that you can't always take the most direct route for where you want to go. Each tile has either two or three doors, indicated by arrows on the edges. These arrow doors point you in the direction a Mr. Wiggles piece can move to. If there's a matching arrow on the tile you move to, you can take an extra move for free. If tiles are oriented just right, you can make a big move in one go. So what's the point of moving around this grid anyway? Remember those friends cards you have in hand and that you can draw on your turn? You have to have your pawns on tiles whose characters and backgrounds combined match the card you want to play. By playing these cards, or finding your friends as it's described in the game, you work to earn victory points or build sets of similar cards to multiply your earnings or get a special ability that could aid you on a future turn. Play continues from player to player until someone has played their seventh friend card and then all players calculate their score. There needs to be a careful balance between getting your good cards played when you can and not ending the game when your opponent has an awesome combo where their points on their four or five played cards could easily beat your seven. For being a game about dreams and nightmares, I do find this a very relaxing game to play. I do wish there was a bit more player interaction, but it's not so severely lacking that it makes the game unenjoyable. The gameplay is quick, clocking in at about 10 minutes per player, when I was playing this heavily at BGGCon 2016, 
this was my go-to 2 a.m. game before I'd, oddly enough, get myself to bed and enter Dreamland. Hmm. Talk about meta. The rulebook is well-written, and the game is quick to learn. Since the grid is laid out randomly, and with the orientation of each tile being uniquely important, each game plays out completely differently. I honestly like this best as a three-player game. There's just enough use of that rotate tile action to make things a bit more difficult for an opponent without that being the largest part of gameplay like I've seen in a four-player game. I've played it the most at two players and don't feel like I'm missing out with the lower player count. Dreamwell retails for about 25 and for the lover of quirky, visually invocative games, this is definitely a hit. For 5 by Games, I am Stephanie Stone-Rob, and until next time, stay playful. This is Sarah, and today I'm going to be talking about Paperback. Paperback is a deck-building word game published in 2014 by Tim Fowers. The basic mechanism of Paperback is familiar to anyone who's played a deck-building game, and easy to learn for anyone who hasn't. Each turn, you draw five cards from your hand and use the letters printed on your cards to spell a word. Add up the coin value printed at the top of the cards to buy new cards which are added to your deck. Many cards offer a bonus ability, like adding extra coins to your word or making an adjacent card wild. Some cards have two letters on them, which helps to make longer words, but can also increase the difficulty of your hand. And there are attack cards, which have negative effects on your competitors. There's also a common card, which is very helpful, usually a vowel, and can be used by any player until someone captures it by spelling a seven-letter word. But most important are the fame cards, which are worth victory points at the end of the game. Fame cards are wild and can be used as any letter in a word, but they don't add any coin value towards buying cards. If this sounds like a typical deck builder to you, you're not wrong. Paperback uses a classic implementation of deck building that will be comfortable for anyone who's played games in the genre. But that's not to say the paperback feels stale. There are several types of optional cards you can use to add variety to the game. First, player powers that give each player a little boost, like if you have no wild cards in your hand, you get to draw an extra card. Then there are theme cards, which reward creativity. Each theme card adds a theme to the game, like paranormal or western or science fiction. Each time a player spells a word in that theme, they get the theme card. The theme card changes hands throughout the game. The player holding it at the end of the game gets five victory points. Finally, there are award cards. These are also worth five victory points and are granted to the player at the end of the game who has, say, the largest deck or the fewest wild cards. I have to confess, I rarely play with the powers, themes, or awards. I find Paperback's deck building mechanism so elegant and spelling the words so fun that I don't need to liven up gameplay with these extra cards. I'm more likely to play with the wooden cubes that are rewards for hints. If a player is stuck and can't figure out a word to spell, they can reveal their cards and ask for help. If they use a word suggested by a competitor, the person who gave the hint gets a wooden cube, which they can redeem later for an extra coin. The hint mechanism can also be used to prevent analysis paralysis. Set a time limit on each turn, and if any player runs out the timer, they are required to reveal their hand and ask for help. My favorite way to play paperback is the co-op variant. You make a pyramid out of fame cards with one of the most valuable 17-cent fame cards at the top, then cover that with two 11-cent cards, and so on, with a row of the least valuable 5-cent cards at the bottom of the pyramid. 
You can only buy fame cards that are uncovered, so at first only the five cent cards are available. Every turn that you don't buy a fame card, put a wooden cube on top of one. If you ever put a fifth cube on a fame card, you lose. The co-op game starts out deceptively simple, and the difficulty level accelerates quickly. If you buy up the first row of fame cards too fast, your deck will be weak and you won't be able to get the more valuable cards. When the last fame card is revealed, you have just four turns to spell a word good enough to grab that 17 cent card. I play this variant all the time, with others or as a solitaire game. Paperback is a wonderful example of deck building. There's something immensely satisfying about spelling words that let you buy valuable letters, which let you spell better words so you can buy even better cards with more valuable letters. It builds on itself in a positive feedback loop of fun. And playing a creative or unusual word is satisfying even if the word isn't very high scoring. I've played games of paperback where the players had just as much fun sharing and admiring the words we were coming up with as we did trying to win the game. There is real strategy in paperback beyond word building. Interesting decisions to make about when to keep strengthening your hand with powerful letter cards and when to go for fame cards that weaken your hand but will win you the game in the end. Of course, not everyone enjoys word games. For some, playing a word game feels like being back in elementary school and failing a spelling test. If that's you, paperback may not be much fun. But if you enjoy word games, paperback is well worth your time. I've played it with serious gamers and with people who'd never played a modern tabletop game. You can play paperback as a word challenge, try to create the longest, highest scoring words you can, or you can play to win as quickly as possible. Or you can just play it to relax. Solitaire paperback is one of my favorite ways to unwind at the end of the day. I've played paperback more often than any other game in my collection, and as soon as I finish recording this, I think I'll play it again. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not playing paperback, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Hello, it's Zinzi here, and this episode I'm talking about Eclipse, a space-themed civilization and area control game designed by Tuku Takalio, originally published by Lautaplit, with artwork by Osiakala and Sampo Sikayo. It plays 2-6 and games typically 90-300 minutes long, typically, and I do apologise for butchering the pronunciations of all the names just mentioned. Before I go any further, I'll give you a brief overview of what Eclipse is about. You each choose to play as different faction, human or alien, and each have a starting ability. The humans are better at moving and trading, and their abilities are all the same, making for a more balanced game. The alien abilities are varied, my favourite is the Mechanema, who started better shipbuilding. As the alien abilities vary, it will make for a very different and not so balanced game depending on who you are all playing as. You are exploring the galaxy, aiming to take control of as many areas as possible by laying hexagonal tiles, moving into them with your ships and fighting other players and the in-game aliens for control. You also research technologies and upgrade your ships. Each hexagonal tile is worth points, and it will be this, along with any other bonuses you accumulate throughout the game, that will score your total VPs and determine the winner. This was another early purchase, and a bit of a brave choice I think, because even though it's a medium weight game, to a new board game where it's pretty daunting with a lot going on. It's one of those games that can take a little while to get to grips with and get the flow of, it seems quite fiddly here and there, but it's actually not really, the more you play the more straightforward it becomes. The first proper game of Eclipse I played almost put me off entirely and after the fact it didn't come out again for a good 6 months. The reason being that as new gamers we didn't realise just how much there was to it. 
and how becoming au fait with the rules as went along would actually result in a five player game being about eight hours long. So that was a typically newbie mistake. We started playing around 7pm and called it a day at 3am and the game still hadn't finished. Pre-parenthood, I was well up for games that went on for hours, but that's the kind of thing you need to be mentally prepared for. We played a five player game again last year. And that was more around the four hour mark, which isn't too bad. But I still prefer two player because generally these days I don't have hours and hours to spare and there's way less downtime between turns. If playing with three players plus, there does seem to be a lot of dead time. You can each take as many actions as you like before passing and some will be longer than others. And the time taken into account for each player during the combat phase all adds up, especially when there are multiple battles going on and it can get a bit much. The combat phase is actually one of my favorite things. Which is funny because it's mainly dice chucking and that kind of randomness is usually not my cup of tea at all. But in Eclipse I find it pretty exciting. If your opponents are the player rolling for the alien have a few lucky rolls and you happen to have a couple of terrible ones, it's not going to end well for you. But if you've built a legion of kick-ass ships then it's obviously going to be easier to achieve and I really enjoy making my ships awesome and hoping for some good rolls to aid me into victory. However, this game can be a little unforgiving. And again, a tad on the random side, because if the technologies needed to upgrade your ships, like double plasma cannons, for example, don't appear for the first few rounds, you're kind of making do with what you have, and either avoiding combat or just losing. And you can also get a bit stuck with the exploring as well. The last game I played, I desperately needed more build resources, but I wasn't drawing any tiles that I could colonise to do so. And when I did draw a couple of helpful ones, that aliens are not had to fight to take over and I couldn't risk it with my weak ships, so I couldn't improve out the resources needed. So I spent some time exploring as I was pretty much just stuck there. On round four, I finally had a bit of luck on my way with a bonus tile and I could pick myself up a bit, but it was hard to come back in the last two rounds and I lost. So it is a little frustrating. Yeah, I enjoy the game because it is challenging. The resource management is an aspect I really enjoy and I like the way the resources work with your currency as well. It gives you a thinky balance act of not overspending trying to achieve your goals and making what you have work for you. I think it's an interesting mechanic but as I've said if you find yourself in a difficult spot and you're not accumulating much of a certain type of resource then you can exchange three of one type for one of another which is a terrible exchange rate. The bonus tiles are really helpful and you can keep them for the bonus points or take the special ability. As I mentioned in my last game I was really struggling with my building resources and so I received a tile that gave me 10 for free. So that really gave me the opportunity to catch up. I also enjoy the end of game scoring, but it's sometimes the point where I've said, oh dear, because it's not actually so much about how much area you're occupying as what it's worth. And often I've paid so much attention to trying to colonise certain areas or a massive area that I haven't paid much attention to the fact that my opponent has taken a few spots in the most profitable places, which has lost me the game by a few points. So I think it's quality, not quantity, with the area control in Eclipse. This is also a huge game in terms of the space it occupies on the table. It has a very fiddly setup with many, many wooden cubes on your player board, which you can actually buy separate inserts for to make life a little bit easier, which of course I never have. I've accidentally brushed my cubes off of the player board on many occasions and it's maddening. But despite its flaws here and there, it's a really enjoyable game and very clever and I absolutely love it. If you want to see and hear more from me, you can visit my Instagram and YouTube channel, Shiny Happy Meeples, or pop my blog, www.shinyhappymeeplesblog.wordpress.com, or follow me on Twitter, Cubtwest, Cubtwitch, Meeples. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Port Royal. Austrian designer Alexander Pfister has blown up in a huge way over the last five years. You may be most familiar with some of his popular heavy games, such as Great Western Trail or Mombasa. He won two back-to-back Kinderspiel de Jar for Broom Service and Isle of Sky. 
But my favorite of his games is the relatively light push-your-luck card game, Port Royal. In Port Royal, you're turning over cards, trading ships to get money, and spending that money on hiring staff. Every person you hire gives you some kind of ability, as well as points. You're pushing your luck, because turning over two ships of the same color is a bust, and you get nothing. Even though you know better, you want to keep turning over the cards. If you reveal four ships of different colors, you get to take extra cards, which can mean more money, or spending your money to hire more staff. Like any good push-your-luck game, you're highly incentivized to keep going and brutally punished when you go too far. You can hire pirates to help you repel ships of the same color so you can keep drawing cards, and you can hire traders to let you take extra money from single colors or ships. You can also take on a variety of crew and passengers like captains, settlers, and priests, which you can then send out on expeditions as a way to earn both extra points and more money. Port Royal is, I think, a great example of a highly interactive card game without any take that. There's really no way to mess with what your opponents have built, and there's really no way for them to mess with what you've built. There's also virtually no downtime. After the active player turns over their cards, chooses to stop, and then either takes money from a ship or hires staff, everyone else at the table gets the opportunity to do so as well. The caveat being that you must pay the active player a coin for the privilege of doing so. So you can help yourself, but you still kind of have to help your opponents. Like a lot of other card games where you're buying cards with abilities, the more expensive a card is, the more powerful it is. A lot of the characters you can recruit in Port Royal have that sense of being completely overpowered, but because they're all so powerful, they really feel well-balanced. One of my favorites is the Admiral, who gives you two coins anytime there are five cards available when it's your turn to choose, even on another player's turn. The Admiral can be a huge advantage when playing with opponents who love to push it, but significantly less useful if your opponents are highly risk-averse. Straight out of the box, Port Royal is a really fun and light card game. I wouldn't call it a filler, but it certainly is a small box game. The expansion, titled in German and that I won't even attempt to say, but translated as Just One More Contract, is in my opinion a must-have in order to see and enjoy the full potential of Fister's system. The expansion gives you 18 different oversized contract cards and player cubes. The contracts are a variety of different goals to achieve during the game that give you extra coins. You only play with three contracts at a time, and some of the contracts complement each other and some of them are at complete odds with one another. I think that greatly increases the replayability of Port Royal and can break players out of the well I only go for this strategy every time mindset. The contracts can also be used in a co-op game, the solo game, or my personal variant, the competitive co-op game. In the straight co-op, you're attempting, as a group obviously, to satisfy all the contracts before a timer deck runs out. The timer deck has 13 cards, plus a few extra depending on which contracts you draw, and you're spending a timer card each turn. The solo game is similar, and the rules as written have you sort of betting against yourself at the beginning of the round by removing some of the timer cards and placing them in a victory points pile. If you manage to complete all the contracts, you get the points that you set aside. As I've played Port Royal quite a few times, there's a lot of fun and strategy in building up both an economic engine as well as taking the opportunity to hire crew simply for the points. So I play solo, and would even suggest playing in co-op, as everyone can lose, but only one person can win. So if you don't complete all the contracts, everybody loses. If you do complete all the contracts, you score everyone's points as normal. I know fans of pure co-ops aren't usually in it to have a single winner, but I personally prefer everyone has to work together, but whoever did the best work still wins. The expansion also brings in some really cool new characters and ships. I really appreciate the fact that while working on a number of other obviously much higher profile projects, Alexander Fister is continuing to develop new content for Port Royal. This year they released an even lighter version for even quicker play called Port Royal Unterwegs, which translates to something like En Route. This is a completely standalone game that uses the core mechanics from Port Royal, but with significantly fewer characters. Here, you're just playing to points. There are no expedition cards, no contracts, but delightfully, about a third of the cards from Untervegs are marked to be added into Port Royal if you so choose. Untervegs is so quick and so light that it would make a perfect lunchtime game if you play with people at work. I'm also very excited for the upcoming story-based expansion called The Adventure Begins, 
which promises to add chapter-style progressive story elements to Port Royal in much the same way Fister did with Oh My Goods and the Longsdale and Revolt expansion. Availability is a bit of an odd one on Port Royal and all this content. You likely won't find it at your local game store, as Pegasus Spiel doesn't have direct North American distribution. However, both Port Royal and One More Contract are readily available from Amazon at very reasonable prices. Underwegs I did order from Germany via Amazon.de, but it's also in no way necessary to enjoy the game. The art in Port Royal is lovely work from one of my favorite Euro artists, Clemens Franz. Boxing components are all great, as one would expect from Pegasus Spiel. Of course, I would prefer the card or linen finish, but at the low price point and a large number of cards, I don't really blame them. So who should buy Port Royal? People who like push your luck card games. People who like the age of European sea power. People who like to learn a card system and be given multiple different avenues in which to explore it. People who enjoy building a tableau and cranking it as a production engine. And people who are looking for something more than just a filler, but smaller and shorter than a big box strategy game. I give Port Royal 3 out of 3 mainsails hoisted intact to the starboard against the prevailing trade winds. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Mason A. Weaver. Hello 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, and today I wanted to talk about In the Year of the Dragon, designed by Stefan Feld and published by Aaliyah in 2007. This is one of my absolute favorite games, though it can be controversial at game nights, as it's particularly brutal and unforgiving. The game was actually out of print for a long time, but a new 10th anniversary edition was just released, making this game of disaster mitigation available to new owners once more. The game takes place over 12 months of a particularly difficult year in ancient China. Each player must build up their province as best they can, calling upon their loyal subjects to help them deal with the difficulties to come. At the end of every month, or round, a new event occurs, and almost all of them are terrible, consisting of plague, Mongol attacks, famine, and more. Players can see what's coming in all future rounds, and so must use this information along with limited time and actions to reduce the impact of each event, and lose as few people as possible when it resolves. In the Year of the Dragon does always begin with two months of peace, to give players time to build up resources and populate their palaces, but after that the events are randomized, with each of five possibilities showing up twice. And thus the order in which the tiles are distributed can make individual games harder or relatively easier. Each round will start with an action phase, in which available actions are shuffled and dealt into a number of groups equal to the number of players. When a player places their dragon token on an action, they don't just block the action they selected, but all the actions in that group. Other players can still use any action in a block group, they just have to pay for the privilege, and money's extremely tight. The shifting groupings of action tiles force players to think on their feet a little, as sometimes it means you want to prioritize jumping ahead in turn order to make sure that all of the attractive actions in a given month don't end up blocked. Each player will get to take just a single action, which allow them to gather resources, expand their palace, or improve their position on either that turn order or score track. Each action is also associated with a particular type of court member, and if the player has any such people living in their palaces, they'll improve the effects of the chosen action. The person phase that follows is when players get to actually move more citizens into their palaces, and they'll do so by playing a card matching the type of person they want. Each player has a deck of cards available to them that consists of one of each type of person plus two wilds, and all of these will be played, so at some point a player will recruit or discard at least one of every type of person. But many of these people come in both expert and novice versions, with the experts being more effective when augmenting your actions, but the novices moving you further ahead in turn order. So this doesn't mean that your choice of recruitment is all that simple. 
especially because you must have space for your new citizen, which might mean replacing someone already in the palace. After recruitment is finished, players will deal with the event, and in almost all cases, the penalty for not meeting the requirements to deal with disaster is to release a person. Given that the events include terrible disease and marauding raiders, using the term release seems rather euphemistic, but there you are. The event will be followed by an interim scoring round, and then the new month begins. And after 12 rounds, or months, of dealing with everything terrible that can be thrown at them, the player with the most impressive survivors will be declared winner. In the Year of the Dragon is tough. Small mistakes in timing or getting blocked out of a particular space can have lasting ramifications. It's incredibly unlikely that a player won't end up releasing at least a few people during the year, and often the trickiest decisions in the game are figuring out who you can afford to lose. For this reason, it's not a game to approach from the mindset of building up your province, as if you approach it that way, the game feels a bit like getting repeatedly punched in the face and having all of your things stolen. It's a game about surviving terrible odds as best you can, and yet I adore it. And even when I do really poorly, I still enjoy the game, and it just makes my better showings feel all the more satisfying. Now, I will admit that when introducing new gamers to this game, I tend to assume that half of them won't like it, and I do tend to warn people of that fact ahead of time. But for all those who haven't fallen in love with it, there's been a good number of people who've left the table just as crazy about the game as I am, or at least impressed by the design. There are no frills or embellishments to be found. In the Year of the Dragon is starkly elegant, and the huge amount of replayability I find in it comes not from infinitely variable setups, but from knowing I can do better within the game's constraints, and also from wanting to show the game I'm not quite that bad after it kicks my butt. Now, the reprint includes with it the Great Wall of China and the Super Events expansions, items I don't actually own and haven't experienced, so I can't speak to what they add. But even if the answer to that question is nothing, the base game is, in my opinion, one of the greatest games in my collection, and thus I cannot recommend it highly enough, provided you know what you're getting into. In the Year of the Dragon takes no prisoners, but the satisfaction of surviving the year with most of your province intact just can't be beat. It's perhaps one to play before buying, but if it sounds at all interesting, please search out the opportunity to play. And if you hate it, take solace in the fact you're not alone amongst those I've fed to the dragon. Now I'm going to be stepping out from our next episode of the Five By as I'm off to Rome. But as always, you can find me online at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter as Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Five By. If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at 5 by Games. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810, and listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or just follow all the links at 5 by Thanks for listening.